1: Hello, I'm your host Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming welcoming Uma Girish. Uma is a grief guide and award-winning author. She supports women who are grieving a loss, whether it's the death of a loved one, the end of a relationship, the loss of a dream, or watching a parent die. Her first book, Understanding Death, Ten Ways to Enter Peace, Inner Peace for the Grieving, was an attempt to answer the question, what happens when we die? Her transformational memoir, Losing Ama, Finding Home, a memoir about love, loss, and life's detours, was published by Hay House and won honorable mention in the 2015 Chicago Book Awards. Her third book, Lessons from Grace, What a Baby Taught Me About Living and Loving, will be published by Hay House in 2018-19. Uma is also co-founder of the International Grief Council with Daniela Norris and Loanne Meyer. Their intention is to travel and teach to create safe healing spaces for conversations around loss and the aftermath. In 2018, IGC is hosting its first retreat in August at a charming monastery called Charney Manor in o- Oxford, UK. Welcome, Uma. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be here with you. I'm, I'm pleased, too. Um, we have similar outlooks, for sure, uh, that became evident just reading your book um, in terms of you didn't uh, step around grief whatsoever. Um, you you told the whole story, which is which if which is really a goal of mine to tell the whole story, not just um, what we end up making out of our grief, but what's hard about it too. So thank you for that.
2: Oh, thank you for saying that. Yes, I think it is important to step into the messy, ugly bits, so the reader can see that you are every bit as human as um, as they before you got to transformation. <laughs>
1: Yes, and, and um, as, I'm, as I'm very aware right now, my mother-in-law just died. You have to do it every single time. <laughs> I'm missing that's her terribly. So
2: There's no getting around that. <laughs> no um, getting
1: around it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But let's I think start you know with... a little
2: bit more each time, but um, right. sadness does drop you back into that space, I think. And, uh, you know, that's what being human is all about. Absolutely, and, of course, every relationship and every person
1: is different. Um, losing my mother-in-law is very different from losing my mother just because of the differences in those relationships. But let's start with you know, what inspired your work in the book in the first place. Um, your own loss of your mother, Amma, is what you call mothers in India, correct? Yes. In southern India, yes. In southern India. So that's particular Mm -hmm. to region, is it? I'm sorry? That is particular to that region of India? That's correct. In southern India,
2: the local word for mother is Amma.
1: Yes. Amma. Would you tell the story some of... um, Actually, I guess we'd say two intersecting losses, um, leaving your home country and then the loss of your mother.
2: Yes, uh, we certainly didn't plan it that way. Um, this was the spring of 2008 when my husband, my daughter, who was 14, and I relocated from southern India, Chennai, to um, Chicago. And we arrived here with six suitcases and a, and a hearts full of dreams. But the universe had very different plans for us. Um, We spent the early weeks with my sister-in-law, getting our social security cards and buying a second-hand car and stuff like that. And then we moved to an apartment in northwest Chicago um, in May. And 10 days after we moved into that space, um, we got word from India that my mother had been diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. So not only did I not have friends, I didn't know anybody here. Um, I was, I didn't know how to drive. I learned how to drive um, in Chicago. Um, this news was just devastating to me. I mean, this was not the transition I had imagined. And so I got on a plane six weeks after we moved here and went back to India to be with my mother, for a month and a half while she went through um, chemotherapy. My father was very ill by that time, and my mother was his primary caregiver. And so I knew that my younger sister, who my parents lived with at the time, would need some extra support. So I stayed with her for six weeks, and when I said goodbye to her, I had no clue that that was a final goodbye. Mm. She died just eight months after her initial diagnosis. And that was just a very, very difficult time for me. I was in a pretty dark place. It was winter time in Chicago, my first winter ever, in two thousand nine, and um, I f- found myself plunged into this deep, dark, hopeless pit of despair. I was so far away from everyone that I knew, that I needed that could have comforted me and that knew how to console me. Um, nobody here knew my mother, so I could not even share my stories with anybody because they had no context for who she was. All of those experiences, the physical transition um, from one continent to another and the transition from a seemingly normal life to the space of, to the landscape of loss was just <laughs> hugely challenging.
1: And you know i'm I'm so aware from from working with clients who are uh, trying to support ill parents far away, like the East Coast, far away. Um, <laughs> th- how challenging that is. But I was mm-hmm. imagining, as I was reading um, the, the you know even putting aside that you had left all your resources behind, really.. Um, just the geographic challenge of trying to be available, uh, I, I'm ima- I haven't moved in a very long time, so I have to use my imagination cap. Um, but I'm imagining that the thing that we do when we move to a new, new location is try to plant there and in a way try to let our souls uh, land And that process also couldn't happen because you left so soon after getting here.
2: That's right. I didn't have time to make new friendships. I didn't have time to navigate my new space. Um, Physically, I was here, but mentally and emotionally, I was in India. I was far, far away. I tried to call my mother as often as I could. I made sure that I got all the regular updates from my sister but it just—it um, felt very inadequate. I didn't feel like, feel like I belonged here. I didn't feel like I was in India. Mm-hmm. It was in that that the feeling of being in limbo, which is an awful feeling, um, because you just don't feel grounded anywhere and in anything. So, yeah, it was a very, very difficult time in my life.
1: I think it might be a good a good moment to uh, have you share um the the uh, a piece from the time right right after uh, she got the diagnosis from your book because I think it does capture that sort of um, unbelievable bereft place that um, was even further accented by that circumstance of being so far away.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to So this is um. The moment when I'm switching on my laptop and I I get the confirmation. When I eventually switched on my laptop and checked my inbox, all the hope that had buoyed my chest like a helium balloon whooshed out. The confirmation on Maya's email devastated me. Amma has cancer. Even though her earlier email indicated that this was a distinct possibility, the news rocked me. Those words took over the rest of my day. Those three terrible words were everywhere I looked. On the oatmeal-colored carpet, the living room walls, the green grassy slopes outside the window. I could have handled Amma fell in the bathroom, or Amma has a bout of viral flu, or Amma had a bad asthma attack. But cancer? I couldn't even see that word belong in the same sentence as Amma. Then the cold, hard fats hit me. The cancer was big. It had spread to most of her right breast. The next steps were to stall the enemy, keep it from invading her lungs and liver. The ultrasound and mammogram presented damaging evidence. The doctors were already talking about a chemo schedule, possibly breast surgery. Girish and I broke the news to Ruki, who instinctively reverted to being my child, crawled into my lap and sobbed her heart out. The three of us stood in front of the tiny altar we'd fashioned, lit the lamp, held hands, and whispered a fervent prayer. It was one of those moments when I didn't even know what to pray for. Do I pray for the doctors to discover that they'd made a terrible mistake? That the cancer not be as bad as everyone thought it was? Or that Amma go through surgery and come out clean on the other side?
1: That really highlights for me the way in which um, if we are um, people who believe in something beyond us, the likely first stop is praying for something to be different, um, praying that it's a mistake, praying that um, they'll cure it. You know, um, that that takes a long time for some people to... Um, to refashion, what do you pray for when it won't it, when it won't get better?
2: Exactly. How do you even know that what you're praying for is uh, is the best outcome for the person you're praying for? Right? Cause yes. There was a part of me that knew that uh, she needed treatment, but there was another side of me that went, oh, my gosh, chemo. I don't want anyone to have chemo. Uh, So do I pray for her her treatment to be safe? Do I pray that the cancer goes away? Do I pray that they've made a mistake? I had no clue what to say standing in front of that altar. So, yeah, but then later when I didn't get the, the outcome that I wanted so desperately, I turned away from God. I was so mad at Him. We we broke up. God and I broke up. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: That's. I'm laughing because um, if we if we sort of think, you know, some someone said to me recently um, that there's there's kind of no breaking up, but you can turn away.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it sounds You're as so if right. it was, yes, it was there such is an extreme up, but I didn't know it at the time I said you exactly. didn't give me what I wanted we'll I prayed you. so hard I was very invested in in her being part of the survivor statistic and I thought my prayers would get her there so um, that was a good lesson in learning how to be detached from the outcome
1: detached from the outcome that's a, that's a uh, Easy phrase that's so hard to bring about, isn't it? Uh, And what does it even look like? Because, of course, you continue to care what was going to happen. It's not
2: a a cold detachment. But my sister told me when it happened that, you know, she said if she had lived longer, her suffering would have gotten much worse. And I wasn't there. I wasn't even there to see the last few months and how she deteriorated. I didn't know what she looked like. I I could hear the sound of her voice on the last phone call that she and I had. Um, That told me that something was very wrong. But in my mind, I just couldn't picture her as someone um, who'd lost a ton of weight, whose stomach was distended. I, I didn't have those pictures in my head. My sister told me, just be grateful that she didn't suffer anymore. But that was sort of theoretical
1: for you. Exactly, yes. Uh, for your sister, though, it was very visceral. She was, uh, would would that be true to say, that she was sort of right up against how much misery was was happening for your mother?
2: Yes, my sister, I think, felt the effects of anticipatory grief, because she could see that things weren't going well. She knew in her gut that this story wasn't going to have a happy ending. She saw my mother deteriorate from one day to the next. I didn't have those pictures in my head. And as it turned out, our grief experiences were completely different. When my mother died, my father was was still around and she had to care for him. So she kind of had to dive into another level of responsibility, whereas I who was so far away from home and everything familiar, I tortured myself by sitting down and trying to create this motion picture in my mind of my mother's last few weeks and last few days, and especially the last few moments. Mm -hmm.
1: And and when you were living in India, were you living quite close to them?
2: I was about seven minutes away from them, and oh I would my gosh my mother, almost every day. I would uh, buy groceries for them and you know arrange their doctor's appointments. so I just thought this was such a cruel twist of fate that when she needed me the most, I had moved so far away and could do so little to help her.
1: One thing I did notice in the book is that you didn't seem to. You did your best to be there as much as you could, but it didn't seem as if you and your family uh, questioned the decision to, to go, which, you know, sometimes we torture ourselves that way too, um, but I didn't hear a lot of that. Is that, is that true, that you knew that that was um, the, right, the right decision, but a very painful one?
2: Um, do you mean when we moved to the... When state, you had moved, right? Not knowing, back. of
1: course, that this would this would happen so soon. Um, but I, I find that that sometimes that leads to a lot of self-doubt, you know, when, when there's an accident of timing
2: like that. Exactly. Um, yes, there was a period of time when I constantly um, questioned our decision to move Um, But then when we left, we had no clue. We had no clue that there was anything like this happening. Um, She seemed to be in reasonably good health. And I questioned this over and over again. But then many months later, many months after she died, I look back on this time and I see now how perfect it was because what if we had come to know of her cancer diagnosis even two weeks before we had left. Um, That would have made our decision much more heartrending. I think. I wouldn't have known what to do then. Do we leave? Do we stay? And my husband's successor had already been appointed in the office in Chennai. Um, The company had created a position for him here. So in, in all ways, we were invested in moving forward. So had the diagnosis come at that time, I think things would have been really, really more challenging. But I didn't have the clarity at the time when my grief was so raw and fresh. It was in thinking about it and reflecting upon this that I found that, you know, everything that happened happened just the way it should have. It, it, It was okay. It was perfect the way it unfolded. I think that's
1: almost always a retrospective, isn't it? For instance... Uh, living with my wife's illness for 10 for ten years, uh, I wasn't thinking how lucky that I have 10 years, right?
0: <laughs> I was right. thinking,
1: exactly. this is so hard. But now, you know, many, many, couple decades later, I can say I really got a benefit out of how long a time that was. I really learned a lot in that time. But that is retrospective, isn't it? I knew it. I knew it a bit, uh, you know, some years in, uh, but but vaguely. It's a lot more distinct now that there's a lucky aspect to it.
2: I think so, it points to how our soul expands and grows through the experience. I don't mm-hmm. think I could have come to that realization back then. It is only when I look back that I am able to see the gifts of grief. But when I was in the middle of it, if someone had even mentioned the word gift, I think I'd have smacked them hard.
3: Exactly. Yes,
1: let's come back and talk more about that because that's a big subject. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Uma Girish, go to umagarish.com. That's U-M-A-G-R-I-G-I-R-I-S-H. U-M-A-G-I-R-I-S-H dot com. Be back soon.
4: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
3: Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reish. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships
3: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up?
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America
4: Health and Wellness.
0: You're listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Uma Garish's book, Losing Ama, Finding Home, chronicles her experience of losing her mother and and, uh, coming to live a very different life and have very different uh, outlook than she did before that experience. And before the break, Uma, you were saying if someone had... um, had suggested there was a gift in in your grief, you would have socked them, I think Mm -hmm. is how you put it. And that's so familiar to me. That You cannot be premature um, with
2: that. My fundamental belief, and this is something that informs everything um, I teach, all that I do, uh, my work with my clients, it is that we are souls in human bodies. But... To me, that means we have to embrace all of who we are, the the human self and the divine self. When loss happens, it is the human self that typically takes center stage, which means Mm -hmm. we feel the physicality of the loss, we feel the emotionality of the loss, and we have to sit in that space of ugliness where we are crying, we feel messy, we feel out of control, helpless, broken, whatever you choose to call it. Yes. And that is not the time for wisdom. There is a time for just stewing in the pain. Just doing what you need to, what you can do. But very little wisdom gets in because, you know, I think your brain is wrapped up in that fog of the experience. And so when the fog begins to lift and you begin to have a little bit of perspective and you recognize that this is not a space I want to be in all the time, I want to be able to laugh again. I want to feel happy. I want to get back to that place in me that knows peace. That is when you begin the process of reflection, and that's how it worked for me. So if someone I had trusted had said to me, be patient, just live this chapter where you are now. When you get to the chapter where the wisdom unfolds, you will be ready for it. I would have trusted that. If that person had had said gifts of grief, I may have said, because I trust you, I'm going to wait and be patient till I get there. But otherwise, um, I think this level of spiritual bypassing, which I see happen so much these days, where people want to leap over the pain and get to the spirituality of it, um, that seldom works in my view.
1: And, and I think it, uh, it diminishes something as well. Um, I was just working with a client this morning about this, how you accept where you really are and, and not try to uh, bypass it, as you're saying, and I agree completely, because uh, otherwise, it's kind of an empty, um, it's an avoidance Uh, experience instead of an acceptance experience, wouldn't
2: you say? Absolutely I I think you're spot on Uh, when you try to manage your feelings in a way that's not the healthy way I think you also learn to be more guarded when it comes to love and joy and being vulnerable. uh, And then expect to experience that vitality, that exuberance, the excitement, the joy of life. Um, When you shut down to one part of it, you shut down to every part of your life experience. Similarly, when you open to your grief, I think you open and expand... um, to the joys of life, to the beauty around you, to everything good and positive about life.
1: So we're we're in agreement there, a hundred and a million percent. Uh, but but um, people don't people in the midst of it. Uh, I know the first few years after my wife's diagnosis, it just felt like such. I didn't know how to accept that level of pain uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how to let it go through me it took a long time to to learn that and I get the sense that might have been true for you too that there's there's a process that's the encouraging thing that there is a, a way to creatively find find that but it's certainly not immediate is
2: it no absolutely not um, I also think everyone has to find their own way so what works for me may not work for somebody else um, We each have our own unique gifts we have things that um, that feel comfortable that reassure us and that's different for everyone and so the thing is to be patient to open up to to life's um, to life's comforts and reassurances in whatever way you're able to in the moment. I don't think you can do grief more than five minutes at a time. But I think the, <laughs> people, the mistake people often make is they want a five-year plan for grief. And I, I tell them you you can only plan five minutes.
1: Yes, and you don't exactly know what those five minutes are going to be like. Um, there's a There's a piece of writing I'd love for you to share because it captures those sort of You know, you could be going along, uh, even in deep grief, relatively um, usually. I won't say normally, but you're kind of a little familiar to yourself, and then something happens that just throws you upside down. Uh, There's no Mm -hmm. plan for that except to accept it when it comes. I thought your your piece about... um, Shopping for Apples uh, sort of captured how a simple thing can just spin you when you're in that kind of moment. Would you share that?
2: Absolutely. Uh, That's one of my favorite pieces. So thank you for asking me to read it. Um, Late morning, Rookie and I drive to Dominic's. We usually shop at Meijer, but if I have to pay a few extra dollars to shop and drive less than a mile on treacherous, snowy roads, I'll do it. I walk into Dominic's thinking, I just lost my mother. What do I need apples for? A well-dressed lady is standing at the fruit bin. She picks up an apple, inspects it, tosses it back on the pile, then picks another. She repeats the process with clementines and pears. I watch her from a safe distance, hypnotized, utterly impressed by her efficiency. Then I take my place in front of the bin and stare at the fruit. They all look the same. Colors and shapes and textures blend and blur. I pick an apple. It feels heavy in my palm. I smell it. Nothing. I turn it around, then watch it sit in the middle of my palm before I chuck it back on the pile. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. The simple act of buying fruit, which once took me all of three minutes, has become a chore of Sisyphean proportions. Rookie comes to my rescue. She says nothing, simply slides out the grocery list through my limp fingers and starts to crisscross the aisle in determined strides, grabbing bread and cereal, detergent and low-fat yogurt. I push the cart, Follow her around. That I know how to do.
1: (laughs) We do know how to follow our children, don't we? (laughs) I I was so uh, touched by her capacity to read that situation and step in. That's not always, you know, a young person's... um, way with a parent, at least in the US. <laughs> um, yes. and, and, it, and it did make me th- think about and, and, and want to ask you about whether you believe there's, there are any differences, um, you know, between the way people look at loss and grief in India and the way they do here.
2: Grief is much more a communal experience in India than it is here. So your immediate family, your relatives, your friends network, everyone sort of descend on you and wrap you up in a cocoon. So you're protected, Mm -hmm. you feel safe, people bring bring food as they do here. Um, And the other significant difference is that we have 13 days of rituals that is a period of mourning right after someone dies. And so I think rituals form a kind of safe framework for the grief experience. Um, And so you have to go to the temple every day. There's a priest who shows up. There are things to do. And you are constantly in that space of talking about the loved one who passed away, doing things for them to honor their soul's journey, to um, mark the memory, so two weeks of doing this right after you you've lost them, I think feels like a, a safe thing for most people to do. Um, so those two would be the most significant changes that I have seen um, between mm-hmm. the West and here uh, and uh, India. That's interesting
1: because, for instance, when my wife died, I am not Jewish, but I did, I, so, I sort of had a week of sitting Shiva as in um, opening my house every night and having, she was a very well-loved person, you know. So every night opening the house, having food, um, uh, hugging each other, you know, uh, and I agree that really made a huge difference to, to have that. Uh, container at the start. Um, I can imagine two weeks would even be, uh, you know, more of a sense of of being loved mm. through it, for, through that initial time.
2: Yeah. And the other thing in India, Cheryl, is that um, when somebody dies, everyone in the building, so if you're living in an apartment, everyone in the building comes to know the bodies. Brought outside and laid in the foyer uh, where the last rites are performed before it is um, taken to the crematorium, so grief is much more of a public experience, I would say everyone comes to know everyone supports you it 's okay to to cry and you, you just feel held so because it's it's such a public experience and there is not that kind of um, you know, I can't be seen looking like this, or I can't talk about this, or I can't grieve openly. I feel like there's more permission to grieve.
1: That's that's interesting, too. I mean, that's that's partly uh, a certain um, willingness to confront death, isn't it? If, exactly. If yes. bodies are actually brought out where uh, people in public can see that someone has died and what death looks like, even. Um, that's, of course, remarkably different from what happens here often, where everything is sort of hidden away. So I can imagine that uh, you were there for that period, that couple of weeks, yes? Yes, I went back home
2: for her last rites.
1: So to me, then, you have that experience and then come back here to... uh, you know, a, a brand new place, no, uh, no significant people besides your family. A very private experience you were having. That must have been such a uh, grueling uh, moment.
2: That was one of the hardest things for me to navigate because my husband was busy. He was on the road a lot. My daughter was trying to adjust to life uh, in in high school, and so I found myself at a loose end. I was working in, in senior living. I, I had a part-time job uh, back then doing groups. I, I still group, do groups in the same community, uh, but I had no space where I could share my grief, talk to somebody about my mother because nobody knew her, like I said. Um, there was no context for her, for her presence or her absence. So that was one of the most challenging experiences I had to go through, which I think is one of the reasons why I looked for a grief support group, although I had no clue what that would look like.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh You you got pushed uh, by necessity out of your comfort zone, huh?
2: Yes, yes. Yeah. And I needed a group of people where I could cry and, and rail and talk about my mother and feel held. So it was perfect that I found this grief support group. I was at a loss of parent table, um, and for the first time, you know I write about this in the books that I felt I felt like one with them, because we were different in skin color and we spoke with different accents, but everyone was sharing the same kind of pain, and that pain connected us. I think that was one of the earlier experience, earliest experiences for me. Um, about how pain really connects us on the human level, and to me that was really, really profound, and I think that was probably a seed that was planted which informed what was to come.
1: I felt that way because, of course, now you uh, – and we'll, uh, I want to spend most of the last um, third of our time together talking about this. Now you, of course, support other people in grief. You, you have made this your life work. And um, so you feel as if that it, – it, it, the power of that support happened for you when you found people who also knew grief.
2: Yes, um, I think some very powerful shifts happened with me just going to that grief support group. Um, I found storytelling to be a very powerful experience, even when you're sitting with a group of strangers who don't know very much about your cultural background, how you grew up, um, the relationship you had with your mother and, and that are specific to your cultural context. At the end of the day, the common denominator was grief and pain. Um, When I found that that could be such a powerful connection, irrespective of where you come from, how you speak, what the color of your skin is, I felt something profound shift, shift inside of me. And I'm very aware
1: that that caused some complications because you had had a very maybe corporate type of job before and then you change to a very different way of working. So I, I want to talk about all of that when we get back and, and um, uh, give some time to what came out of all this for you. Okay. <laughs> uh, listeners, you can find me at weatheringgrief.com or the gr- the Good Grief Host page. To find Uma Gurish, go to umagurish.com U-M-A-G-I-R-I-S-H. Back after the break.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Ready to transform your health and your world? Time on the Voice
3: America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the World of Nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health Professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1pm Eastern, 10am Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Uma Gersh, author of Losing Ama, Finding Home. And um, we're going to talk in this this last segment, this last time we have together, basically about how you came to the work you do and what that work is so that people can go go find you. Um, but I thought it would be great to start. I I felt it was a turning point, this piece in your book uh, about uh, what you now felt called to do. You know, that moment where you feel called to do something. Um, mm-hmm. When when you've kind of chewed on the grief long enough to have that impulse uh, towards uh, generosity and, and giving, Um, Could you read that part of your book as a starter for for this time? Sure,
2: I'd be happy to. I have no desire to rush through a morning commute, go to a job, and earn money for its own sake. Is this me? I have to wonder. I, who performed exceedingly well for two decades in a fiercely competitive advertising industry, always valued independence and earned my own money since graduating from college. All the jobs I've had so far have brought in more success, validation, and money than I'd ever imagined. Now, the desire to compete on that playing field has vanished like a puff of smoke. Estranged from the rest of the world and what everyone considers normal rituals of living, I struggle through one of my loneliest phases. Since Amma's passing, I feel like a person who's been taken apart and put back together with brand new programming. The old software doesn't serve me anymore. Life's big questions push my safe boundaries, challenge my comfort zone. A one-word mantra takes up residence inside my head. Serve, serve, serve. My life beats to the rhythms of a different drama. Make a difference. Make every day of your life count. I don't understand it. I have no choice but to obey that compelling voice. One thing I do know for sure, it's a hellishly lonely place to be in.
1: You know, the, that section really impacted me because I recognize that feeling so much of um, wanting to do something with what you've been through. Uh, once Once you're... Um, Once grief is not uh, taking everything, let's say. Um, I also, though, was really struck by the struggle that creates for people around you sometimes. Um, For instance, you you alluded to um, it being kind of challenging for your husband to kind of accept this new you or... um, uh, you know, it brings up fears. I'm sure financial and and also just uh, we know people by what they do, and then when they start doing something different, it's it's a little unnerving. Um, how was that for the two of you to to navigate as a as a couple?
2: That's such an interesting question, Cheryl, because um, we had to learn how to do a different dance in our marriage. I, who was an ambitious, independent um, career person, just found myself wanting to serve and that's what I did for about 18 months to two years of my life after my, um, both my parents died. My father died 18 months after my mother. I just found myself called to serve because I began to question what truly matters in my life now. I know that I'm not going to be here forever. I have to make this time count. What is this thing called death and why do, why does no one here talk about it? What happens when we die? Where do we go? What, how am I meant to live the rest of my life? So these were the questions that were jostling in my head and they just wouldn't let me sleep at night. So I had to obey this compelling voice And find a way to serve. And I have to say, it was through service that I found my healing. But my poor husband, who was looking at me and going, Who is this woman? (laughs) I thought I knew her. I didn't marry this person. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he just couldn't figure out what was going on inside of me. I couldn't figure out myself. But something was shifting and transforming within me, and I had no choice but to obey that voice. Well, my daughter was 14 when we moved here, and we had to get ready to send her to college, which is a huge financial burden, as we now know, in the West. Yes. So the plan was, you know, I would get a job, he had a job, and we would start saving, but then I didn't know all of this was going to pan out the way it did. And so when it happened... I I just had to quit on that promise and I had no words to explain to him we went through a period when there was this huge chasm between us we didn't know how to communicate we didn't know how to build a bridge across that chasm because I had no words to explain where I was he was um, upset and angry he didn't understand the transformation um but he said to me, he held my hand and said to me, I don't understand any of this, but I promise to support you through it. And I think that was the one thing that kept us together. because Oh, I
1: would absolutely say so. That's such right. a gift when you're, when so you're in the middle of... With us. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> and so I know now your work is very much related to this experience, and I'd like you to uh, be able to share with people your work and, um, you know, some things about what did come out of this. Um, to me, that's the starting place, knowing my work is now going to have to um, reflect this new place I'm in, and having that support. Uh, was certainly, especially given that you didn't have very well-developed social networks, it seems pretty critical uh, to being able to go in that direction. Yeah. So so what's come uh, of all that?
2: I also want to say that um, whereas it sounds like a foolish decision to to just not work and, and serve and sounds like very self something self-indulgent, There was something in me that knew I was safe. I don't know how to explain it, but something kept saying to me, you're going to be safe. You're going to be okay through this. Nothing is going to fall apart. Just follow what you're being guided to do. And I just followed that voice. So I had this burning desire to understand death and dying. So I trained to become a hospice volunteer, and I sat by the bedsides of the dying for five years. Just to really look death in the eye, to understand it, to to be available to bereaved family members who are falling apart, to be available to dying people who, who've never taken the time to understand um, that we all get to that place and somehow make peace with what they hadn't managed to, to do during their lives. That informed my next chapter, really. Um, my work in senior living was was kind of woven into all of that because I began to spend time with people who had uh, much less time ahead of them and and a lot of time behind them. So it became clear to me that I wanted to help people who are going through pain, who are going through the pain of transition, whether it was the death of a loved one, a relationship falling apart, the childhood they didn't get to have, um, an estrangement, whatever it was, the pain of loss. And so that's that's the work I do today. I I do private coaching sessions. I do I have a Facebook group um, with uh, many women who are grieving all kinds of losses. Um, I teach workshops and classes both online and in person. And this is the kind of work that gives me the deepest satisfaction today because I am in the space of just be, just being with someone who is. Experiencing the messiness and ugliness of grief, that's not an easy place to be in. Um, It's difficult to hold someone's hand and companion them through that time. The most common complaint I hear is, my friends don't understand me, my family doesn't understand me, I am all alone. And so the privilege of being there with these women as they're navigating what is one of the most lonely phases in life gives me the deepest satisfaction
1: hmm. <clears throat> you know I've gone on your website and I know you have uh, lots of different things available there but you've just captured the heart of all of them um, and uh, I, I I can imagine how powerful that is um, because you're willing to share your own um Your own pains, your own process, I guess we'd say, Uh, that can be so comforting to feel as if someone is a little ahead of you on the path, uh, but they're still willing to touch the painful parts. Um, I know you mentioned to me uh, previous to going on the air that you have a, a free resource for people, and I wonder if you'd like to direct people towards that. Uh, before we leave today.
2: Yes, the the most common experience most uh, grievers have is that uh, they feel trapped in this fog. They they have no sense of direction. They don't know what to do. They wake up in the morning um, and feel like I felt in front of that fruit bin. I've done this all my life and I don't know how to do this anymore. So I have a checklist which is titled 10 Gentle Ways to Beat Brain Fog When You're Grieving, And this gives you 10 simple ideas on how you can navigate this space. People can find it by going to umagirish.com, my website. And I think the links will also be posted in your show notes. So that's fine. I'd love for listeners to be able to um, get this free resource. It's a great, easy way to navigate that early stage of loss.
1: I, I think uh, there's, a, there's a couple of uh, uh, things that stand out to me there. Um, one, short. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the, I, I feel early in grief, even though I'm a reader and an explorer and all of that, I just really didn't want to read a lot about grief. And and if I was going to, it had to be short. And it had to be suggestive. And it had to be compassionate. <laughs> mostly i read memoir at that point so the idea of just a, uh, and i think i have something similar to this on my website if people want to go check that out um where you just uh give people things to try that might gently help them to uh to navigate that that seems powerful so i hope people will go go check that out and uh it's been lovely to be with you today I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope we'll encounter each other again.
2: Oh, I sure hope so, Cheryl. I've had so much fun talking to you today. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, Absolutely. And I just want to send a warm hug the way of every listener, whether you're listening live or on the replay. <laughs> Me too. (laughs) Next week,
1: I'll have Marlene Fitzwater. She founded Joshua's House, a hospice house for terminally ill homeless people. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.